Lord, we are in need. Uh, just as we've sung, all we have is Jesus, and Jesus is our life. Lord, there are so many things that tell us otherwise. There are so many things that say this is the good life, or you're invited into life like this. If you'll do things like this, then you'll find the real meaning of life. Lord, we are coming back again to your word as we've sung it, as we're going to read it here in a moment to recognize that Jesus is our only hope. Help us again today as we see him as supreme and sufficient in the book of Colossians and in the whole Bible, but also as we see what it means to submit to him, to have our lives hidden in Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Good morning again. Uh, it is true, like when, when we sing those words, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life, and then you turn around and you preach, you recognize that, man, there are so many ways that I want to stand up here and gain your approval, and so I'm just praying uh, and ask you to pray with me um, that that would not be the case, that the word would be what speaks, and, um, and I would trust that the Lord is working on all of us in this. Amen? Um, we're in Colossians 3 and 4. As just preparing for this, I know this isn't an unfamiliar story from, from the platform, but as it always goes, when you read the word, you always see things exposed about you, and it was just last night that here I am thinking about uh, today, and I'm yelling at my kids, and I'm losing my patience, and here I am in Colossians 3 about not being harsh with children and going, how in the world am I going to stand up here? But thanks be to God that he is gracious and that none of us have arrived, and all the while this doesn't excuse me, and so I'm going to be preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you and with you, amen? We're going to be in Colossians 3 and 4, like I said before. Um, there, there's, a, there's a few personal and raw stories that'll come out of this too that I'll want to share with you. And they'll, they'll come as the word continues to pull that out. Um, but let's, let's do this. Since we've got two chapters, instead of just reading them all together right now, we're going to take them in chunks as we read through them. So I want us to turn to Colossians 3 first, and we're just going to read through verses 17, okay? Colossians 3, 1 through 17 for right now. This is the word of the Lord, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not, on, not things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all 
and in all, just like we sing. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, with one, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you almost also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the holy and errant word of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. Lord, once again, I know we can't pray enough. We are grateful that you're present by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would speak in such a way, not that you're not speaking already in your word, but you speak in such a way that we hear with clarity that we are changed. We know when you speak, we can't help but be transformed. We can't help but be exposed. We can't help but be assured in the good news of Jesus, our Savior. So as you speak to us and through us, help us and send us out proclaiming the good news before the watching world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Uh, Colossians, four chapters total. Uh, it can be sectioned off in this way. We've begun in one and two, and chapters one and two really just lay out that Christ is supreme. He's preeminent. There's no one greater than him. There's no one before him. He's before all things, and in him all things what together? Hold together. So he's supreme, and he's sufficient, because in chapter two, it then lays out... Paul and Timothy are addressing some potential heresies or potential unbelief, wrong belief, and saying, hey, you may be tempted to turn to these other things aside from Jesus, but he alone is sufficient. If you're in Christ, you have died with him, and you also will be resurrected with him because of his resurrection. And so, one and two, Christ is sufficient and supreme, and then here we are now in chapters three and four, and they're gonna lay out for us so if he's all sufficient, all supreme, then what does it look like to be submitting to him? What does it look like to submit to Christ in all things? In other words, how shall we live in light of this news from chapters one and two? Uh, submission to Christ as the head of the body, the church. You know, Paul begins in chapter three here, verse one, with an if statement. If then you have been raised with Christ, it could be, change this way for our modern language. So, because you've been raised with Christ, here's how you need to live. Here's how you follow. And so with this if statement, it's speaking as a continuous letter, right? So there weren't chapters when Paul wrote this. It was just a letter to the church of Colossae and that it was gonna be sent on to the church in Laodicea. And so in light of everything written in chapters one and two, that is you, Colossian and Laodicean church, and us today, if you've been raised with the resurrected Christ, now... So seek the things above. Set your mind on things that are above, not 
on things that are on earth. The things that are on earth were addressed in chapter two, right? Chapter two takes us back, speaking to already Christian, already believers, followers of Jesus, not unbelievers, but warning a people to stand firm, stand firm in light of of numerous uh, attractive false gospels, the things that were attractive, the things according to human precepts and teaching from chapter two, the elemental spirits of this world and human tradition. Paul is addressing these things are not what make you alive with Christ. You think you can work and figure out these other things. You think you can do these things. And there's a lot in that. They were kind of drawn out last week, so I'll let you go back and listen to that message online in chapter two. But in essence, only Jesus and his work will make us alive, not our work or not Jesus plus what we can add to it. And that's what the church in Colossae and Laodicea were hitting up against where these different ideas around there culturally uh, that people were saying, hey, I know you believe this, that's cool, hang on to that, but also bring this in too. This is another way of adding to the gospel. Those are false gospels. So if we're to not depend or seek the things that are on earth, then what are the things above? Why not Paul just write, seek Christ? Well, I think in essence he gets to that. But Paul is getting at This text gives us some credible news what he's getting at. Listen to these two verses from Hebrews 1. If you want to turn there for a second, you can turn to Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. If not, just make yourself a note, and you can look to it later in the week as well. Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. And think about this in light of Paul's words, set your minds or seek Christ above. Why? Hebrews 1, 3, and 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What does this have to do with setting your mind on things above? Well, there's something interesting here. Notice that seeking the things above is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Why is it important to think about Christ seated? Is that just a a word to skirt over, to move over? No, what's interesting about that idea from Hebrews 1, about being seated, when one is to sit down, especially in light of this context, thinking about someone sitting down at the right hand of the supreme one, it means that you have finished your work. You aren't seated until you've done the job, until you've fulfilled it. And Paul is just using this wonderful expression of of how Christ is seated. We can't miss that, that when he is seated at the right hand of God, it means that Christ has fulfilled the work. He has died the death that he was going to die on the cross, and he has risen by the power of God, and he's alive. He's ascended to the right hand of God. And so this beautiful imagery, Christ is seated because he's fulfilled the work. In other words, there's nothing we can add to the work he's already done. In our striving, we're to set our minds. 20, Jesus' words here. Let me turn to it quickly, and you can turn there with me if you'd like to. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 20. I 
should have gotten better at Bible drill. I'm a little too slow here. All right. This was a request by the mother of James and John. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him. They came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? They said to him, we are able. Can you imagine the eagerness? He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten had heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This interesting language of the right hand of God. You'll drink this cup but this seat is not for me to give away. It's my father's seat. And think about that. When we think about Hebrews 1, we just read, and now Matthew 20, Jesus' words, and Paul's words here back at, at, at Colossians 3, seek the things that are above. When we think about Christ seated at the right hand of God, his fulfilled, completed work, although we know he is returning, he has completed the work to call a people, to redeem a people, a people that seemed unlovable and unsavable, right? Us, and now seated at the right hand of God, the one who fulfills the actions that God has planned before time began. Let's continue reading on now. Verse four in Hebrews one also speaks to what Paul was warning the Colossian and Laodicean Christians about, the, the heresy particularly of angelic worship. You know, thanks be to God for angelic messengers and the wonderful picture of angelic worship that they do before the throne, right? That's a picture we're given that is going on even as we gather. The angels are worshiping before the throne of God above. But as we think about angelic work, angelic power, what Paul was addressing to them there and even us today is we don't worship angels. We, we worship Jesus. Angels are in submission to Jesus. That's why that Hebrew's language, he's far superior. He's been given a name far superior to theirs. And so he, let's not confuse our, our worship and bow down to the good things and miss Jesus, who is the only name worthy of exaltation. Here's what Paul is, is getting at. It continues on, verse three of Colossians three. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Uh, Christ's death was all about being the final necessary sacrifice for forgiveness of sin, right? Because we see the sacrificial system all leading up to this point. We th see things that were to be done in, a, in an order, that there was to be a priest, and now Christ, our great high priest, he's the one who has given himself, he's given his life, he has been the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so salvation of the sinner, that's 
all of us, involves a death of the person. In other words, when we read, you have died, it involves a death of the person who was once in bondage to sin, as well as death of the one who could only free us from that bondage. Without death, there's no new life. It's impossible. Something has to die in order for new life to happen. So what does it mean as it continues on that your life is hidden with Christ in God? And that's really kind of the theme of, of this text today of, of being hidden in Christ. Well, part of this is that we're kept in Christ. If we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God, then we are kept. In other words, his dying and resurrection was not in vain when we have been radically transformed by the grace of our Lord, when we have trusted in Jesus, when we are dying to self. He's not saying, well, I'm going to have these conditions on you, and if you don't meet these, you're out of the family. The good news of God's overwhelming grace is he is big enough and gracious enough and powerful enough to keep us rebels in his family and transform us, give us a new identity from being rebels to actually being obedient bond servants or obedient followers of Jesus. There's something else about being hidden. You know, it's a comfort to know that our identity has changed from a wandering orphan to adopted son or daughter in God's kingdom. We get all the benefits of Christ's family promised to us. We get the benefits of the hope of the resurrection to come. There's something more here, though. The next verse explains it. This is what's interesting about helping us understand truly what it means to be hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him. See, we think we know the half of it. You know, we've been given this, and, and thankfully, God's word is, is enough. Like, we don't have to turn to anything else to understand who God is, although we recognize there is so much mystery when it comes to the way God operates his plan for Jesus to return, to make all things new, all these things that we just don't know. We wish we knew the timing of it. We knew, wish we knew what it would look like, exactly how it would happen, where we would be, what we were doing, so I could have that last meal that I want that would be really good, all those things that we think we want to plan ahead. But here's the thing about, about your life appearing with him. We think we know the half of it, the good life. We think we've realized it. We've been given enough glimpse of glory that, that maybe we've just arrived. Maybe we have uh, been victorious in our, in our killing of, of sin. Uh, we have particular stories where it's like, I've exposed this and look, I've arrived now. I'm not doing what I used to do. I'm not living the same way I used to apart from Christ. Uh, and the truth is right here, and right now is such a small, a minuscule glimpse and measure of the good life. It's not fully realized. The good life will be fully realized when Christ appears, when he returns. When we still see our, our fallenness come out, we should be discouraged, right? When we see our, our sin exposed, it's not a place to be discouraged, but instead our transformation into the image of Christ is ongoing. It will not be a perfect, sinless, painless life until Christ returns. But this does not give us the excuse or license to live in sin. It's kind of like Paul's language back in Romans. What then should we 
keep on sinning that grace would abound? By no means. No, we don't keep doing it. So we're called to something. We're remembering, yes, we have a small glimpse of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. This, this idea of already, not yet. I'm already invited into the family of God and get to experience, we get to experience the benefits of being called sons and daughters of God co-heirs with Jesus, brothers and sisters with one another as we care for one another, bear one another's burdens, all these things, but it is such a small taste. And that's actually not bad news. That's actually really good news of the life that is to come. It's what drives us to want to follow Jesus in obedience, not because we're gonna earn something from him, but because we know what lies ahead. So, Colossians continues, Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then the list continues, this list of of everything which is considered idolatry and an offense against God, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. It's kind of good timing that we've just been in the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount just before Colossians, right? We, if, if this is something you want to dig into more, go online and listen to those messages as well. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. When we justify these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, the list will go on. When we justify them, we are believing that Christ's death and rising was not sufficient. In other words, we're saying everything written in Colossians 1 and 2 is unimportant. It doesn't matter. But here's the truth for us. Here's what I have to preach to myself every single week, and here's what we need to be preaching to one another as we gather in our groups, as we scatter throughout the week in our jobs, as we encounter our sin uh, exposed, as we see those moments where we, uh, I as a parent want to lash out at my children over ridiculous things or when our relationships are, are strained because we are sinning against one another and not even realizing the, the dynamics of all that stuff. We use this excuse, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, whatever it is, how often have we used the excuse? How often have I been in a conversation and you use the excuse, I'm just wrestling with my sin. I'm just struggling with it. I think I'm getting a little better, but I'm just struggling with it. That's not scriptural, brothers and sisters. That's not scripture. God calls us to kill sin. Well, what are you saying? Are you saying that somehow we muster up power and we have the strength to do this? No, but because Christ is sufficient, Colossians 1 and 2, because he's supreme, we are now freed to put to death sin. Let's talk about this a little bit more. The excuse, I'm too weak. I think I'm getting better. We've got to stop with the excuses. We've got to cut it out. That is not condemnation on us. That is not an indictment on us. That is a pulling out the reality that that's how we like to play it, isn't it? I want to keep it. I want to hold on to it because if I kill it, then my glimpse, my slice of the good life is now gone because that was the way I got to experience a good life because I don't get to see fully what the good life with Christ is. He hasn't returned and so these little things that I do, I know they're sinful but they make me feel good in the moment. That feels like the good life. That's what I should keep going back to and what I'll do is I'll come back to the Lord and I'll ask for forgiveness. That is not killing sin. That is not putting to death what is earthly in you. 
It's a continuation to conform to the patterns of this world if we want to use Paul's language in Romans 12 too. Let's not do that. Let's have that exposed and rooted out even today. Put to death, kill. Because this language of death is continuing, right? Christ Jesus died, therefore we died. Now we are free to kill the things that don't belong. We know we will not be perfect this side of Christ's return, right? We know that will not be the case. We know there will still be all kinds of things. Sin is still out there. It is still a real thing. As a result of the fall, things will be difficult. Things will be alluring. There will be so many things that we go, that's what the good life seems like. I should have a piece of that. But we are now freed to put to death. On account of these things, or these, the wrath of God is coming. That's verse six. Some of the language that continues, and this is language from Ephesians 5, is the wrath of God is coming against the sons of disobedience. It's not here in Colossians in our ESV, but if we go back to the original language, it's there. And here's what's important about why this is, what, what are we talking about? We, we've talked about uh, putting off or putting to death of idolatry. That came out in Ephesians 5 as well. Paul uses similar, similar language, Ephesians 5, Galatians 2. And there's a difference between putting to death earthly things, repenting and living in sin patterns, believing that you can just, or, or, or believing that you can just slowly wrestle with them or struggle with them until they're gone. The wrath of God will appear before false repentance. The sons of disobedience, scripturally, were those who were saying, I'm following Jesus, but I'm holding on to all this other stuff. I don't really have to live in repentance. I really don't have to have a true repentance. What I will do is I'll take some action steps. I'll do some things out in front of people so they'll go, oh, look, Chad's living how he should live. He's following Jesus how he should. But all the while, what's going on inside is I'm going, eh, I don't really need to repent of that. I'll just try to work my way back to the Lord. I'll try to do some things. And so uh, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. If we don't put to death, therefore, what is earthly, then we are not truly repenting. We're just wrestling. And that's a losing battle. That will never, hear me, that will never be won you will never finally arrive. We will never finally arrive in our strength going, I've just been working with it. I've brushed it under the rug. I haven't told anyone and I'm just gonna figure it out because I think somehow five years down the road, I'll be mature enough not to do that again. With sobriety, <laughs> hear this, it will not go away. That's really bad news. That's really scary, but the good news doesn't end. Dying with Christ allows us to kill sin. I'm, I'm on repeat, aren't I? I'm saying that over and over just because I need to preach it to myself. The description of what we're to put off continues. Let's go into verse seven now. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. In other words, hey, yeah, apart from Christ, this is the way we all lived. 
But now you must put them all away. You can't cling on to some and take Christ. It doesn't work that way. That's the idea of being lukewarm, right? Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. All these things are just covered under idolatry. All these things we walk through with the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. You you know, this language of, of putting to death earthly things or dying daily or denying oneself is exactly why this Wednesday will participate in Ash Wednesday. Uh, it's, it's this idea of what does death truly mean? What is the value of death? Why do we even have to acknowledge death? It's not a fun thing to talk about. But if we really look here in Paul's language, Paul and Timothy addressing, there's actually really good news about death. There's actually, it was necessary that all things are gonna come to an end. There's this, Beautiful thing about gathering in that service on Ash Wednesday, it's a formative soul-shaping practice that the church has been participating in for centuries. Is it something that if we participate in or if you decide, no, I'm not gonna be there, I can't be there, that somehow we're like a low-level Christian? Absolutely not. It is not required for us to be faithful followers of Jesus. But just like what we do when we gather here, there are these formative things that take place. There's this gospel shape that we just can't get away from. And sometimes we think shaping is always a direct thing. It's always something we do, and so we receive this formative thing because of what we do. But it's also an indirect thing. The more we participate as the people of God together, we are being shaped into the image of Christ. The more we participate in the spiritual disciplines as we scatter individually, as we go through life, as we read God's word, as we pray daily, as we meditate on God's word, as we seek the things that are above, the Lord is shaping us even in ways that we don't recognize. That's part of that already, not yet as well. The Lord is maturing us in ways that we may not even see until years later we may look back and go, wow, look at God's grace on our lives. Look at how he's been working on us slowly but surely. Uh, in order to really understand and celebrate that we have died, to sin and live to Christ. We have to acknowledge the full scope of death. So as John Stott, one theologian and and pastor, wrote in his book, The Cross of Christ, he observes there's three deaths to speak of, and we'll observe these on Ash Wednesday as well. There's three deaths biblically, if we want to acknowledge them this way. One is a legal death. It's a result of our own sin. It's, It's When we acknowledge the fall, the beginning of sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, taking that fruit they were not supposed to, the fall resulting, we all deserve separation from God. It's it's this inherited original sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one, to dig into Romans 3 for a second. But Jesus' death on the cross gives us a union with Christ in his death. So we're no longer stuck in disobedience and rebellion against God. To, to borrow the hymn text, we were blind, 
But now we see. So there's this idea of legal death. As a result of sin, we all deserve death. It is what will happen. Death in the sense of we are separated from God, but we are united or reconciled in Christ Jesus. The second death we acknowledge, though, is a moral death. It's what Paul's getting at in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 9. We are to die daily, right? Killing sin is a daily thing. Denying oneself is a daily thing. Deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. And then three is a physical death. Because of our sin, our earthly bodies will fail. Mine is failing as I stand up here and my knees are hurting. They will not last forever. Physical death is going to occur. But the believer, those of us in Christ Jesus, have a glorious hope, a hope of resurrection because of our resurrected Savior, Jesus. So legal, moral, and physical death, we will acknowledge all these things. So when we gather on Wednesday for Ash Wednesday, it is setting us on a course to look ahead to the cross of Jesus and eventually to celebrate his resurrection and from there to celebrate his ascension and from there to celebrate his promised return. But we're on this course and there is time for us to sit in this idea of what does it mean for us to acknowledge the weight, the reality of death, but that death does not have the final word if you have died with Christ. And then scripture continues, Colossians 3, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Uh, This is all about identity, right? This is all about identity and transformation, being renewed. It's the exchange of righteousness over filthy rags. You have died to the old self and put on the new. The good news continues that as we put on Christ, as we are hidden in Christ, as we are clothed with Christ's likeness, our minds are being renewed daily. Ephesians 4 is a great place to go to this week as you continue to meditate on Colossians 3 and 4. Read Ephesians chapter 4 and and come back to putting off the old and putting on the new and being renewed in the spirit of your mind being renewed within, having your thoughts set on things above, right? It brings us back to verses one through three. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Putting on the new self is inward, right? It's something that's personal, But here's how Paul continues. Here's how this text continues to shape. It's an outward thing to put on the new self. This is certainly about personal sanctification and maturity. But look at this outward identity language. Here's how it continues. Colossians 3, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is an interesting text. Why is Paul going here with this? Well, to dig in more to that identity language, to put on the new self, to put on Christ. Here's what we don't 
want to do. Here's the road that would be wrong to go down. Because we're identifying all these different peoples and these different groups and these different backgrounds, so we're in Christ, it just means all of the stuff about us that makes us unique and makes us different, all of our different colors, all of our different cultures, those things are just tossed out. That is not a reality. If that were a reality, then the book of Revelation needs to be tossed out in the hope of standing before the throne where a multitude, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be before the Lord. It doesn't change who we are and who we were made and how we look, but our identity is something that is inward that should affect the outward. So if... It doesn't mean there's no longer a diverse kingdom of God, I think is a better way to say it. But if, if you were with us while we read through the book of Acts, you may remember the incredible divide that there was between Jew and Greek, for instance. There was this idea uh, of warring against one another. We, we were the covenant people of God. This is how we've lived to follow God. And you guys haven't been circumcised and all these kind of things. It's weird to say that from a platform, but oh well, we gotta say it because it's scriptural. All these things, like they wanted to war against each other. We, we, we're Hellenist. We, we've got these great philosophies. We've come up with all these great thoughts about who God is. And so like God is the reconciler of those things. That's why there's no longer this thing, but instead Christ is all and in all. And so uh, as you remember the incredible divide that there was between Jew and Greek, uh, then it continues on barbarian Scythian. These were terms used in that time that, that, that folks basically were saying, you're unrefined. The way you speak, uh, which is what I can be guilty of in my Southern dialect. Sometimes us Southerners get the, the caricature on us like, you guys are all dumb, right? Um, and so thank you for not doing that to me, by the way. Um, but it was this idea of like, oh, barbarian Scythian, they haven't arrived. They're way less mature than us. They have terribly rude habits. They smell bad. The list could go on. And so Paul continues to lay those out. Uh, Barbarian Scythian, and then by the way, uh, it continues on slave or free language. Well, here's where we don't want to go with that. This is where we abuse or where people have abused that in line with chattel slavery. The idea of like, I can take someone, make them my property, and make them be my slave. How many instances? do we have of that in our culture, right? From the sex industry, from actual slavery that happened in our nation. This is not the same type of slavery we're talking about here when we identify slave and free. In fact, the word there in Greek is doulos, which has to do with a servant. And it Instead of the idea of owning property or treating someone as property, this idea of a servant was someone who owed a debt to someone. I owe you a debt. I need to pay it off. Will you give me a way to pay it off? I will submit to the work you give me, and I'll do this. That's an example of this servant-slave-master relationship that Paul's addressing here. So I don't want us to get that confused when often those in the world say, oh, see, slavery was cool at some time, so why is isn't it cool now? That's not what scripture says. Scripturally, vehemently opposes chattel slavery, any type of slavery in that way. So that's always worth acknowledging. This word bondservant is what we get here. And then when we think about Exodus 20, when we're in the Ten Commandments, the idea of not to steal, 
God was addressing his people and saying, don't man steal. Stop taking people as your property. That was the language there in the Hebrew of stealing. Don't steal people for your property. And so Paul is saying all these things, you're a united people. So no matter what your role is in life, no matter your cultural background, you're united. As you put on the identity of Christ, you're made a new person. Not that the things about you are gone that are so wonderfully uh, true about being image bearers and how we are all different, but you're internally now a, a, a new person. The old person has been put off. The old man is put off. The new man is put on. You have put on Christ. In other words, this is what it means to be hidden in Christ. To put on the new self and believe Christ is all and in all is to live in the reality that the barriers are broken down in Christ to unite everything that seems impossibly unifiable or so eternally disjointed. The things that we thought couldn't be reconciled can be reconciled in Christ. If Christ could do the work to reconcile us to God, then he certainly has done the work to tear down the wall of hostility and reconcile us to one another, right? And so it brings us back to this put to death the things that are earthly in you because what did we talk about? We talked about malice, slander, being in opposition with one another, In light of this, put on as God's chosen holy ones. Scripture continues, holy and beloved. Let's not get away from that. In light of this, as God's what? Chosen ones? Man, that's massive. To be called out, to be called a people in the kingdom of God, holy, to be considered holy and beloved, the righteousness of God. What are we to put on? Compassionate hearts kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then it continues, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, uh, just a personal story, a raw story. Uh, for the past few months, um, we've, my family, we've had a, a relational struggle with someone we love dearly and have had to like work through that and meet with them and like thanks be to God that we were able to sit down and just like see God's word at work in our lives. Each of us who were at one point in opposition to one another, a dear friend that you just go, I didn't think that would ever happen. I didn't think we would ever have this riff. I'm sure we all have these stories. And like being, seeing this in Colossians is like, oh man, you can't escape it. I would like to just brush it under the rug and just hope that it just changes over time. But this idea of identifying with Christ and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and putting on the new self, putting on Christ, just, it reminded all of us in this circumstance, we can't do this. Like, we can't do this to one another. As as deep as some of the wounds are and were, and even that it will be a process of healing, just thinking through these things, this stood out to me. This is a just a personal and raw story where I'm, I'm just like, 
Guys, I can't just preach this to you. I've got to preach it to myself. And I know my propensity in this particular situation will be to want to turn back and go, I can't believe they said this. I still think they feel this way about me. I still think they're upset in this way. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And then put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That is beautiful. That is incredible news. Verses 15 through 17 continue. This is probably one of my favorite passages of of text. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Be thankful. It's echoed through the book of Colossians uh, four times. Chapter one, verse three, Paul's thanksgiving for the church. Then one twelve about Paul saying, "And, and be thankful for Christ. And then here right now, giving thanks to God the Father through him, and be thankful. And then we'll find in, in chapter four, we'll get to that in a moment, what it looks like to continue in thanksgiving. So what, what is this idea of let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called, and be thankful? How? Well, here's what's interesting about this. It's like it's gone from here's, who you need to, here's how you need to live individually as a follower of Jesus, but we can't escape the reality that we don't do this alone. We have one another, and the way this works of putting on the new self is a collective thing too. It's a thing the body does with one another. In other words, if that were not the case, this would be pointless. We'd say just go on, just go read the word, find a way to sing with your own instrument or turn on the radio and sing, and I don't know, just fill us in on how life is. No, the body of Christ comes together and we address one another. We address one another, worship gathered, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And here's what's beautiful about this language. Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly is not one of these where it's like, hey, Let's let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and then we'll do these things. No, it's actual language. By doing these things, let the word of Christ dwell richly. In other words, as you address one another in wisdom, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, you are letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So when we sing these songs together, when we read scripture together, when we fellowship with one another, when we're talking after the gathering and we're, we're sharing what's going on in our lives and we're speaking truth back to one another, We are letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. This wonderful language, 
It probably seems personal as a musician here of addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The idea of we've been given scriptural songs that give us these wonderful affirmations of who God is, but these protests of how life is not supposed to be and asking for help and just going, I don't know what to do, Lord. Help me. I need you as my rescuer. The psalms give us this incredible language of you've always come through, Lord. You've never forgotten your promise. And then this, this idea of hymns, I guess we could kind of say, well, we know what hymns are culturally today, but this idea of hymns were songs of remembrance. Hymns were like the song of Moses when the people were delivered out of exile from Egypt, and and Moses and the people sing this wonderful song of, you have delivered us. There was no other way we would be rescued. You have come through, Lord. You did it. You alone, Lord, did it. And this idea of spiritual songs, these are songs where from our hearts to the Lord, we're singing with gratitude. We're singing with neediness. We're saying, Lord, Even in the ways I can't express a melody or words, I have this song in my heart, an eternal song that's connected to the song of the ages, a song that will be sung before the throne for eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We have a spiritual song placed within our heart when we have died with Christ and been resurrected with Christ. Amen, everyone? We have this wonderful news to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. So we serve, we lead, we point each other back. The word of Christ dwells richly and we are thankful. We can be thankful continuously even in a lament of things, even in our fear of things, even in the exposure of our sin and all the hard mess. Be thankful It brings us back to what? Set your mind on things above. Seek things above. And whatever you do, as you're seeking things above, as you're setting your mind on things above, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verses 18 through 24 into chapter 401 continues like this, if you want to read along with me. Wives, Submit to your husbands. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. As is fitting in the Lord, husbands, love your wives. Oh, man, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything. Man, our kids are downstairs. They need to hear this right now. For this pleases the Lord. Shoot, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do. Here's another whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. A hidden life in Christ is not hidden from the watching world. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Our lives are lived, our love for one another should be exposed should be shown it as a witness to the watching world. So, here's where it gets messy, right? We don't like this because culturally, like anything to talk about submission brings up stories of how that has certainly been abused. And that, 
is a real thing, right? We have a multitude of stories of authoritative lording over uh, uh, power-hungry abuse, right? We could probably write a mile-long list of how those things have played out for maybe some of you in your work, maybe some of you in, in parent, uh, parental uh, structures, maybe some of you in, in your own marriage, all these things. Maybe some of you are going, uh, like me, hey, the Lord's still working on me in this. Like, I see this exposed all the time. So let's, let's do this first. Let's not confuse the language of submission with the cultural idea of submission, right? The cultural idea of submission is you do everything you can to fight against when someone's abusing power. I don't have to submit to that. Submission, though, friends, family, brothers and sisters, submission is God's idea. It's here. It's his idea. He made it. He, he, this wonderful thing from the beginning of time, the Trinity's always been, and they had a mutual submission, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They didn't lord over one another. They had this mutual glory-sharing submission that was always going on. So submission was happening before mankind was even made. But now, in God's idea, is a way that we are to live, a way that we're to live in that we are transformed, that we have a new identity, that we have put on the new self. If you have put on the new self, if you have put to death what is earthly, you will submit in this way. So wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. What, what does this mean for Ladies in the room, those of you who aspire to be a wife or those of you who are currently a wife, maybe for the ladies in the room who say, I don't aspire to marriage, but I know I will have an authority in my life. Obviously, a little different language here of submitting to your husbands, but the incredible way God has made the family, his created men to lead. Does this mean, ladies, you will not lead? Absolutely not. But men are to be pioneers and plowing the way and saying, this is how we are going to protect our family. This is how we are going to serve. This is how we're going to be a leader. This is how we're going to shepherd. In the same way elders are to shepherd the flock of God among us, this is how we are going to step out and lead. You are not to be lorded over, but instead there's this wonderful submission that you're invited into as your husband leads. Now, if your husband is in sin, if your husband is abusing, if your husband is doing something that goes against the ways of the Lord or the way God has intended, are you to submit to those things? Absolutely not. Submit all things to Christ. Submit to Christ. So, Husbands, submit to Christ first. Wives, be able to submit to husbands in this way. I'm sure there are many other questions that will come out of this, and there are probably many other sermons we could have on this. Shoot me an email. I'll do my best to talk with you and address this more. Because it doesn't end here. Husbands, you're not off the hook. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In other words, here's that language of this is not a place to lord over your spouse. This is not a place to lord over and be harsh. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Honor your father and your mother. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Well, does that mean moms in the room are off the hook? No. But once again, fathers are to lead the way in the home, to be the primary example, to set that example for the household. So if you're in a single family household and you say, I have children, I'm a mother here, 
What is this? Why doesn't it address this? Well, there's also something here interesting. This language for father is also used for parents in other places, and so we can't get around the idea of, yes, Paul is addressing men, fathers here, but we can't get away from the idea of parents. You're, neither one of us are supposed to lord over or to be harsh with our children or provoke our children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants. Once again, this language that we read earlier of slave and free, this is the same word being used here, doulas, servant. So if you are in an environment where you submit to an authority, a boss, a leader, someone who is, who is telling you, hey, this is how I'm calling you to do your work, you should be able to submit to them in those things. This is a witness to the watching world. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then it continues on. You are serving the Lord Christ. God's got your back as you serve him. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. So if you're in an environment where you're like, man, I'm having to submit to someone that I don't agree with, trust the Lord in that. There's no partiality that's kind of sobering too. When we think about in God's family, you know, just as there's no partiality in reconciling the people of God, there's no partiality in executing judgment against the, the, the wrongdoer. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Our submission to Christ should drive our security in being able to submit to authority in our lives. Chapter four continues on, and we're ending our time here. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that's Paul and Timothy, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Think about that. Walk in wisdom. Submitting is one way we walk in wisdom. Loving others, caring for others, putting on the new self. Walking wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then these greetings. Tychicus will tell you, that's an interesting word, about all the activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. Do you know who Onesimus was? If you read Philemon, Philemon, however you want to say that, this is the same guy. This was actually a runaway slave of Philemon. And Paul addressed Philemon and said, hey, dude, this guy's a believer. Like, you need to love and care for this guy. Receive him back. So that's the same guy, just in case you want to know. Our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So here's a guy with, in Rome with Paul and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
And Jesus, who is called Eustus, so not the same Jesus Christ, but another one, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf with his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Laodicea and Hierapolis were two towns that flanked uh, Colossae. There were two larger cities there, so you can kind of see what's going on here. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. So pass this letter on and to Nympha and to the church in her house. So here's someone who's planted a church in Laodicea. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. I'm curious as to what that one is. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So Paul's saying, hey, encourage this brother in this way. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. Walk in wisdom. Set and seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.